my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Afrotech Executive is our multi-city series, which empowers corporate executives, investors, and tech moguls. And we kick off our 2023 series with a trip to Seattle, Washington. March 30th, we're in the city discussing artificial intelligence with Jessica Matthews, founder of Uncharted. Be in the house with us this year for an Afrotech Executive event. Visit experience.afrotech.com to learn more. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Drew Hansen is an award-winning designer, entrepreneur, and founder currently working on cannabis-related technologies. 
His undergrad is in engineering physics from the University of Saskatchewan, and he's got a master's in industrial design from Italy. Drew balances the requirements of both fields naturally in any design strategy. So I asked him, are designers naturally good at design? Like, is it something you can be born with? Or is good and inspired design a concept that can be taught in school? There's some parts of design that education helps. I think, you know, I create a lot of things, but I don't call myself an artist. And I do that, I don't know, because I don't have a lot of, as much maybe faith in my art creations as I do my engineering creations and I can't hinge my identity on it. But when it comes to design, the difference between art and design is functionality. It has a purpose. It serves humans somehow uh, in, its, in its methodology of its creation. And to that point, education helps the size of the basket of tools you have to reach to to be able to create. But there's great creators who have it and there's great, sorry, there's great designers who have it and there's great designers who don't. But you'll be more prone to, I suppose, exp making a mistake or doing some exposure, things like that, um, just because you wouldn't have certain experiences that maybe would have stopped that. It's, it's so interesting that you said you don't call yourself an artist in that way. And it's, it would seem to me that um, may, well, let me translate that for how I heard it and then you, maybe you can clarify um, what you actually mean by that. So how I hear that is you're less inclined to, to reach and to, um, to go completely left field or just give a whole new perspective to how something could be presented to the world. And maybe you don't mean that, so I'm looking for clarity. <laughs> when I say... My art, I feel like if I was to just restart the conversation with that being the subject, I feel like my art is the digital hardware creations I make with the zeros and the ones and the software and how that's done and the designs themselves and how they come out. I'm, I can fairly honestly say from all the hardware pieces I've gone, that I've created, that have made it into mass production in the world, nothing really looked like them before. Nothing really operated like them before. There's, there's some part of them there that there's a lighting design that, you know, there's some real heart and soul in. And I think maybe that's what I could call my art. But in the sense of how the TikTok world sees art, which is I can create this piece and sell it for this much money. And I live off of that, you know, that definition of art, I guess I would say, I, I have a hard time of saying I am one of those, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I wanted to talk to you about how how you balance the desire to create something special with what the business needs and what the consumer needs and what the business needs to make sense. Like, how do you balance those things? It's an interesting question. Um, it has to do with whether or not the products you create, you consume. Because what I've learned is it's obviously a lot easier to create something that you consume because you have certain insights that don't exist if you're outside of the demographic pool of what who actually utilizes your product. And it's okay to create that way, but it's a hell of a lot harder. And it's a hell of a lot harder to be not just on demographic, but to ensure that your timing for when you're making this thing is also accurate. And when I talk to that, I guess my own personal experience is well, I, my background in life is I wanted to design racing technology for Formula One, and then I pursued this long, you know, passionate journey for that. And along the way, there was, there was some great wins, but I think at the core of it, it was a bit, um, it was a bit different. 
So let me reset. I just I I lost my train of thought as to why I brought that point up. <laughs> no, this is good. This is super good. I'm really interested. Okay, so let's reset. Ask me the question again, just yeah. so I can have it reframed. Yeah. So I was interested in how you balance the consumer needs and what the consumer wants versus actually what the business needs. So. But you, you always are trying to make something that the business needs if you're making it under your business umbrella. That's kind of the starting point for the conversation. But how you craft that solution and what you craft and why you craft it still can have different answers. And when I was talking about having insights versus not having insights, right now, so I always, my parent company is 22B, my product design studio. And from there, we focused on things at the intersection of art and technology and art and design. But when we first created something, I want to create things that help people. And the first thing we created was Seam Technic. You know, in that company, we created a personal safety IoT platform. It had a mobile application that an Uber driver or anybody who worked by themselves could use to share not just where they are, because I felt like that was easy, that was done, that was accessible, that's just fine, my friends. But if you, you know, use Find My Friends or you send up that red flag that you're in danger once or twice, that kind of a system doesn't really have much usage. So what we're talking about is how do you share your current state with context? And that's where I felt there could be an advancement in that area. And so, you know, we, we created an app that allowed you to share what you see, what you hear, and where you are, uh, synchronized to your GPS data, live stream to five people. Um, and it had a good application for Uber drivers. Uh, then we expanded that to um, we expanded that to lone workers, um, targeted demographic of people who just work by themselves and might need access to such technology. But we really landed on a good home with realtors and people doing open homes, for example. Now I'm not a realtor. I'm not somebody doing an open home. And in this situation, I don't have certain insights. But we went ahead because I was very certain that the product we were creating was needed, was was something that was valuable, and I still to this day contend that. You know, we um, and then we created a wearable device called the Lotus that had a built-in microphone and speaker, but it also synchronized to your Siri or Google Assistant. And this is like six, seven years ago right now. So it was like on the cusp of when Google introduced this technology. We were at CES on that launch year with them. And you know. I guess the point I'm trying to make is when I was in that company, we were basically trying to sell, do you feel safe? And, you know, to the point about doing something and selling it and having those insights, I've been consuming cannabis my whole life for medicinal purposes. And on top of that, I've been creating technology my whole life. So when it comes to now having a cannabis technology company where our goal is to become, say, the Dyson of the industry, it's not just to have a vape pen it's a lot easier to create products that are on target that push forward the business versus even if they're on my personal agenda, um, as I guess the point to bring it all the way back to the question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm interested in your take on it. It's one thing to say, you know, you, you pushed for because you believe that, you know, it was needed in the marketplace. It's one thing for people to want what you have. It's another thing that they're willing to pay for it. How do you, Absolutely. you know, balance, how did you know that they would pay for this? Because we, we had people that paid us. And, um, you know, when we, when we made the, when we made the device itself, we actually showed up to CES at various points in the year, at various points in the product cycle, uh, to effectively ascertain from our initial prototypes, 
was there a market for this not only just in user base but was there a market for this in retail distribution buyers around the world you know um and the all the signs said yeah every time we we had to go through some form of research the market said yes and we ended up getting into best buy you know we ended up almost being acquired by a company whose name i probably shouldn't say so i won't but we you know we were we were right there and uh but I think the thing in business that's interesting is you miss by a bit, you miss by a mat, it doesn't matter. You miss, you miss, you know? And so a lot of that for me, whether it was timing, whether it was other stuff, it pushes you to really try and consider why it was that the business didn't get where the business needed to go, even if I thought I was satisfying those personal, this is what this does need to be for me to go to sleep at night, you know? This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My next question, I'm going to tee this up in a specific way, because I was in an Ikea some years ago, and I saw this poster that they had on the wall. And it was about their design and pricing. And it was talking about they decide what something will cost first. And then the cost of it will dictate how they produce it. So they're going to make a chair. And they're going to make a $24 chair. And therefore, it has to be produced a certain way. And so Mm -hmm. getting to the point, my question is sometimes things fail, not because they're not needed in the marketplace, not because there's no demand, but the price you know, of it mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense. And so you could have decided to, instead of making it with some sort of plastic, making it with a different type of plastic, therefore the price, you know, can come down. So how do you know which levers to pull when you know that there's a need in the marketplace, you know, there's some desire in the marketplace. How do you know which levers decide whether this thing will be successful or not? There's as much market research as you can do, but you know, I, I, I hate making this quote because I know it's just such an overused quote, but somebody like Steve Jobs said it best, like people don't really know what they want, right? And so if I'm gonna sit there and try and, and market test and I'm gonna say, I know I can sell a $20 version of X. Okay, that makes perfect sense. We can go and we can try and create a $20 version of X and we'll go forward and, and we'll do that. And that is a, that is a way that a lot of companies uh, sorry, let me just turn that off. That is a way that a lot of companies operate. However, most of those companies didn't make the the iPhone. Most of those companies <laughs> aren't the chat GPT, you know? And so 
Yeah, there's a whole lot of like Zoom boxes that we could sell for 20 bucks or whatever it might be or, you know, but there's there's something to be said about combining as much as you can know with something that has insights in something and then just intuitively understanding this is a cliff, a cliff that's worth at least looking over, you know? And at the end of the day, it's almost like when it comes to creating products, creating companies or anything of that nature, you know, when a lot of people ask, when do you think it's perfect? When do you think it's finished? There is no, there is no, there is no perfect. There is, it's good enough to go out and I'm comfortable that it's going to deliver on its experience. And I think maybe bringing it back to a fundamental difference between art and design, design does have a point where it's supposed to deliver on a promise. And at that point in time, I can be more laxed about the visual cues of something or the aesthetic component of something, which is only one part of that thing, you know? Yeah. I, I was just watching you answer that and you made me think about how just having the design is probably not enough. You got to be able to communicate the whys and the hows and the reasoning behind. Have you experienced perhaps, you know, a counterpart or even a classmate, somebody who had remarkable things but couldn't communicate it, therefore couldn't find success and or or just aware of the concept and, and what happens there that could allow those people to find better success being able to communicate versus just having great notes and great designs on a sketch pad? Yeah, I think there's like two levels to that question. On the first level, you have communication of your own ideas, right? And the ability to work within your team, the ability to show somebody a thought, the ability to, to do whatever. And, you know, for me, transitioning from an engineer to a designer, because my undergraduate's engineering physics, uh, I then did a whole bunch of motorsports stuff. I did a, a data acquisition internship in Indianapolis. But when I was in Italy and I was shifting over to becoming a designer and I was just trying to be humble and say, I don't know sh about, uh, you know, like I was just really trying to, to, to see the difference. And I think, I think somebody who can't communicate their simple ideas to their team, that's one problem. That's something you can learn. And, you know, why my, my mentor in Italy, uh, Alberto Fraser, he said, I'll teach you three things. One, how to draw, because you can't draw. And he used a lot more exploitative language than that. Two, how to think like a designer and not an engineer, because they're fundamentally different. And three, quality of life. And that's another conversation. But on the subject of drawing, you know, there is a book called Learning to Draw with the Right Side of the Brain. And it's a fantastic fundamental book that if you go through their exercises, it is undeniable that you will be able to draw at the end of it. I absolutely guarantee it. And so it basically rewires your brain from seeing the world with the left side where you're analyzing uh, shapes, systems, and patterns. You know, when you were a kid, if somebody asked you to draw an eye, you weren't going to do the half circle with the other half circle. But now as an adult, almost every single adult will draw an eye as that because they've been trained on that as the symbol for that. But if you were a child and you said, draw that eye, they would actually just try to draw the contours as they saw it. And that's the fundamental difference is just learning to draw it as you see it versus how you think about it. And once you kind of free yourself from that shackle, you know, communication abilities, <laughs> at least quick sketch ones, become more proficient. 
So on that first level, I'd say that's the answer to that question of if somebody was lacking a communication ability, it would definitely affect their ability to communicate because the beauty is in the details. And, you know, one time I was working on a hanger design for Valentino with my, with my mentor, it was his client, not mine. And he sat there and he, we, we printed out what we did from the digital files, but then he just sit there with a pencil and went over it like 40, 50, 60 times until he was like, nah, that's the curve. And so there's a small part of just knowing the fundamental tools that helps you really master those digital ones, even if you are the more advanced students who thinks you're great at communication. And then I would say the second level to that answer is me. I am terrible at communicating in certain regards. I am horrible at posting on social media. And when you don't show the world what you're creating and the only mediums that the world accepts these days, nobody knows who you are or what you create. And so, you know, I am, I am the poster child for, for, I never really wanted to be famous. I just wanted to make things that help people. But in today's world, when the things you create, other people now depend on and livelihoods start to depend on, it, you, you kind of have to let go of the original reasonings and, and learn some new communication tools because I guess that would be what you're hampering. <laughs> what inspired you to use your talents in the cannabis industry? I, we were coming out of Seam Technic, which is that personal safety IoT platform. Um, had $100,000 left. I had just burned quite a significant chunk of change trying to make it work because we kept getting really positive indicators that were just like, okay, we, we should figure this one out a bit longer. And, you know, to that point, I'm still happy everything went the way it is. I still have to recover the damage that that created, but you just learn so much from it. And I think, I think, what do I think? What do I think? Okay, ask me the question again, and then I'll, I'll yeah, give yeah, you a few yeah. I'm interested in what inspired you to use the talents and gifts you've been able to develop in the cannabis industry versus, you know, all the other things you could have selected. So my dream in life was Formula One racing tech. I ended up uh, getting flown to England to defend a technology design against the other 10 best selected in the world in a Formula One competition that Renault put on. And, you know, I spent a year in Indianapolis very graciously with Team Walker Racing and got to see the track life. And, you know, when that was my initial dream, it just seemed so unattainable. But then when I was 26 and I was in their F1 facility, I was like, I can hang with the best in the world in this. But then when I had to go back to Italy and my mentor was like, quality of life, bringing that into the conversation now, how do you want to live your life? He's like, I don't, I want to be able to see my daughter. So I gave up being the head designer at Ray-Ban. And I was like, I want to be able to eat Chinese food. I want to live in a real city. I want culture. I can't live in the middle of nowhere for the rest of my life just because I want to pursue Formula One. And so when it came to what I could use my skills for, I just really realized I loved designing tech. You know, I loved um, just the final applications for it. And when it came down to, you know, starting it now, Seam had about $100,000 left in the bank account. And it was, well, now's the time. Because here in Canada, it's fully legal, federally. Uh, it's something that I have the insights on. You know, growing up, I started consuming cannabis very young and to a point where, of course, at certain times, everybody abuses something when they're a child. But it was very medicinal. Like, I 
sat almost every day through calculus. I finished calculus and bilingual diploma. So I finished calculus in French for anybody who says, you know, cannabis destroys a child's mind. Well, it was helping me sit through mine. I got through that and then I went to university. So I know firsthand what it's like and what it means to certain people, I suppose. And I also know that when it comes to something like alcohol, people have decanters in their homes, these very beautiful crystal vases, vases, what you want to say, call it. And the world will walk into somebody's home and be like, here's a nice bottle of wine. What a beautiful decanter. Let's get smashed now and celebrate. <laughs> and it's like this culture that's kind of interesting when people don't, people are, have basically de-branded alcohol from being a drug. They're like, that's not a drug, that's alcohol, but it's a, by definition, a drug. And so what I always thought was lacking was the injection of something that could create pieces in the cannabis sector that were officially decanter level grades. So if somebody walks into a home, you can invite them into the conversation just with the object itself and then soften the experience and, and then ultimately elevate it for everybody. So really that, I just, I thought I had something to offer. You know, I, when the, all the technology in cannabis that I feel is relevant exploded onto the scene in the various places it did, you know, like the volcano with the analog dial over a decade ago in Los Angeles, when people started figuring out to pass a little bag around was a thing. You know, there's a certain moment in time when concentrates came out that a company called G-Pen captured all of everybody's attention and were producing a device called the Micro-G and that, that was a moment in time. But what's different about us and everybody else is I guess the word purpose. You know, I don't want to just take any of those little things and make a small adjustment on it. I wanna find holes where we're just not fulfilling our promise as creators that have functionality requirements, not just artistic requirements. And I wanna make sure that this one chance we've been given to consume cannabis recreationally, medicinally, and legally gets the best shot of having the tools and the products that elevated status to something that is becoming mainstream. And they're not even just here in the most wild of countries. Like, can we get this in a Sharia law country and maybe get them to soften up in one way and have, yeah. and have, have cannabis, you know, if we, if we do it right, because there's certain bars in those places that are consuming alcohol. So it's not like the conversations that far fetched. And, um, I guess back to the point of making things just to help people. It seems like a good place to put my efforts after the dream of F1 was kind of passed on. <laughs> this is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. 
if you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a part of Drew's website that said he's interested in consulting and collaborating on projects that have a positive impact on the world. And I think we all get by now the benefits of medicinal marijuana. I mean, it helps with anxiety, pain, inflammation. Talk to your own doctor, not me. But like recreational marijuana, when you say you're interested in working on things that make a positive impact on the world, how does recreational marijuana do that? How does recreational marijuana make a positive impact on the world? Drew speaks on it. Well, there's there's a lot of safety and regulation, ultimately. Um you know, when it comes to cannabis products, there's people who make bad cannabis will give you cannabis covered in mold, will give you cannabis covered in X, Y, Z that is actually harmful for an individual. When it comes to a recreational user, so I don't necessarily need a medicinal certificate to say I want to take Tylenol, right? Or if I just want to kind of have like a sleep ease, right? And so there's a certain functionality that we can empower a recreational user with without needing it to be medicinal like we have done with everything else and so that only happens when you can trust what's in something and ultimately i've just really learned we can't trust people in general like to leave something to themselves i'm sorry to say (laughs) so but other very interesting things start to happen with regulation so let me explain that for example, if every single cannabis that's now released is tested for all its cannabinoids and terpenes and their specific percentages and volumes by weight, now we can start to have reliable data to offer products that utilize that. Machine learning structures on that data sets. How is this affecting that? How is that doing that? And the level of infrastructure from the creator side starts to go up and starts to become more advanced and starts to become more evolved with a purpose you know i always said for example blockchain is great cryptocurrencies are great is cryptocurrency going to be the best demonstration of blockchain technology time will tell and that's kind of what i'm talking about no yeah um so i i have a outside of this business i have another business where we we're a marketing technology agency we do video production and etc and we specifically focus on companies and organizations that are trying to reach and engage multicultural and diverse audiences. And so as a byproduct of that, a lot of our clients tend to be like, you know, nonprofit organizations, governments and et cetera. And what I learned a revelation to me was that what typically happens with video producers is they assume that when you hire me to do a video, you just want a really beautiful video. And what I found to be our value proposition was I realized you don't just want a nice video. You, if you're a government, you ultimately want to pass a levy. That's really what you want. The video is just a part of telling a story that ultimately helps you pass a levy down the line or whatever. And so what are some of the things when, when you take on a new project, design project, what are the questions you ask yourself to answer for the consumer, what they're really, they don't even know to ask. What are you trying to solve for them? It, de- it depends on if that 
the foundation of why I'm answering the question is personal based or business based. Um, and I say that because when I'm trying to solve something personal based, of course, the end goal is business positive results. But it's almost some of it is an ego play, if you're being honest, that you put that into production because you didn't necessarily have the data to do that. And when it came, when it comes time, like right now, we have, uh, we have, we're transitioning from a vaporizer product with Toki to an accessory that is for dry flour. And, you know, there's arguably not a whole lot on the market that's like it to prove that it should exist. Um, but I know how much happiness will come from people when they go through this experience that we're trying to offer. And there's just a certain level of happiness that when you get a wave that hits you of it after you touch something that intuitively, I don't need data anymore. I've, I've been, I've been around certainly long enough to know. So I guess the challenge to me and my team or my team and I is, is always when we talk about a product, we always say, okay, What's the user journey? How am I going to touch it? How am I going to hold it? How is it going to feel when I go about it? And every, every single step, have I introduced friction, which is going to piss somebody off? Or have I just made their lives easier? And if you make somebody's lives enough easier, you're doing great. And if at some point you inject a piece of cleverness where people can figure, like almost find it, then you're taking somebody from doing great, having a great experience to, oh, damn, I'm gonna remember this forever because that was just yeah. so cute, you know? <laughs> and it's like, how much of that can you find while still fulfilling your promise of, I'm not gonna just put crap in here for the sake of putting crap in here and it still works the way it's supposed to, you know? When, when you do have to go gather data, as you yeah. talked about, you know, just that, unique insight that you may have as a designer, but when data is important, talk to me about the experiences you've had and how you actually go about collecting data. Like, what are you using? Are you using serve? Are you going door to door knocking and are you using on like, what is the process for gathering valuable consumer data? Uh, depending it's industry specific. Again, when we were in the, so when I was creating action cameras, uh, in London, the UK, I was designing action cameras for a company called Drift Innovation, uh, kind of like GoPros. We had a lot of professional teams in a lot of professional circuits, and there was, you know, access to mailing lists of people that we could, you know, bring to the table to give us active data that we were actively bringing people into sessions for, which sometimes we did. Um, but what I think was more important was where that company came from is also an insightful conversation about data. So the two owners of my action sports company, uh, Robin and Sab, bless their souls for, for helping bring me up. They were IBM consultants who started effectively, sorry, let me fix my camera. They were IBM consultants who started um, a website to distribute action cameras originally. Then they sold so many action cameras that they had the data on what the consumers hated and liked and loved. And they were able to translate that to three features that an action camera didn't have, a rotating lens, a built-in screen, and a built-in remote control. And they said, 
I don't know anything about making cameras, but I know what the consumers want. And so for them, they were able to, I guess, take data off of their current activities that was relevant for tomorrow's activities, um, so to speak. Uh, when it comes to us now and operating data, you know, we, we my, my business partner, um, Roy Obulak, he's, he's fantastic. He's uh, from Unilever. He's a head of technology over there in Canada, and he really drives a lot of data conversations for us. And he was developing dashboards for them a long time ago where I, I used to live in London, England, and he used to live in London, England. And I remember meeting one day, and he was like, you have to come see this dashboard. But to that point, you know, there's the data that you create internally in your own company that you should be setting yourself up to capture before you're trying to invest in outside external capture of data. Because if you're already able to generate revenue, well, your own data is going to help you become more efficient at all facets of that. And so, you know, when it comes to should I make a product for a consumer, I'll usually go out on a limb and test after if I'm absolutely honest with you. <laughs> but the the testing we do before is now that we're in the industry, for example, we can create something and we can make a digital version of it and I can go bring it to key opinion leaders and have their uh, their their opinion on it. And I think, you know, it's tough to trust people these days, absolutely with the way the world is. Um but I think a lot of what drives our creations after we have an additional idea is bringing in certain key people at certain milestones that we trust. What, what informed your sense of design? Mm. So in, in your background, like what, if I go to Bill and I see you, Bill was, grew up in the countryside, you know, maybe he went to a parochial, I mean, some, you know, Christian school, like, like he, had, he was going to have some sort of design sense that was informed by his upbringing. Tell me about yours. Mm -hmm. It's probably by my parents' taste because they got some good taste, to be honest. And they were just, when I was growing up, you know, my father was, he's, he's a genius. He got one of two scholarships to all of Guyana to leave the country. Uh, and that allowed him to get a mining engineering degree uh, at Queen's University in Canada. He then started working for several companies and along the journey, but at some point in time, he convinced them to send him back to school so he could get his MBA. And when he came back, the company was going under. He bought it for $8 plus assuming all the responsibility for their debt, of course. And long story short, he figured out a new way to mine a coal deposit that they couldn't have access to before. And then he took that to Asia. And this is to answer your question. My father, while I was growing up, was frequently coming to and from Asia with, you know, Japanese little toys, karaoke laser discs, all the latest stuff where it was just picking my curiosity of technology. Um, but at the same time, just seeing how things are done efficiently. And so I think that combined with watching him just from a from a fly on the wall as he progressed his career while I was a child from an entrepreneur perspective, it made me always want to create things that were for the future that, you know, were business savvy, <laughs> I guess if that makes sense. Um, that and the fact that I want to die a kid, if I'm honest, I've been watching anime since I was a kid and I, I just want to, I always want to be able to dream in different worlds and see different things and, and, and expand like that. And 
I think just riding that train as far as it'll go and it, it took me into import cars which took me into formula one cars which took me into where, wherever we went you know i the story i tell somebody asked me about how i figured out santa claus wasn't real it was one of those toys that my dad brought me back was a voice recorder that had like a voice activated function and so i taped it to the christmas tree and i heard my parents that night and then the next morning i yelled at them for lying to me my whole life that santa claus wasn't real but it's just kind of that kind of stuff, I guess. So <laughs> Brett, and then, See, this is a Brett, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, but then like my dad, you know, he loved Bang and Olufsen, and he's an audiophile. So he had like growing up, he like every time he had the speaker, he was just like, look at the curves, and just you know, it was always just so much more than the product. It was always about how it made you feel when you were just with it, you know that that I think is a bit of a differentiator maybe than about how I see things. How would you say a designer knows they're good? Because I imagine there's an argument to be made for some sort of external validation, right? Yeah. And it, could it be pure conviction though? How do you know if you're good? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> so when I, when I transitioned from engineering into design, uh, I knew I had no design ability and I knew things like drawing and communication were difficult for me, which put me at a severe disadvantage versus other designers. Then I went to try and get a job in London, probably the one of the hardest like places to find a job. And I got humble pie kicked in my face every day for six months, you know. I went to every single design studio and gave them my initial little portfolio that I had when I came out of school thinking I was top dollar. And just, you know, after you burn all 30, 40 of them, <laughs> it's like, but each time it happens though, I realize I was trying to tell people I love designing technology. And I think the important lesson here is the designs I was showing, a lot of them were things I created that were created because I had to a school project, for example, I have to make that. But when it comes to showing the things you made for the love of it, that's when you know you're a good designer, in my opinion, because I will hire somebody who can come to me in a job interview and be like, here's these four things I made because I love them. And I did all these things. And it's true. If you go through the process of creating something, you know, the small little things about it, you know, and the, the nuances and, and, and those sort of parts, but you need to have the rigor to see it all the way through because until you're finished something, it always looks like crap from the moment you start, like until it's at that part, but it's not about trying to make it not look like crap. It's about continuing to ask the right questions that carve out from that ice block simplicity and leave you with that thing that was always there to begin with. And trying to do that for the reasons of, oh, school taught me this is how I render, so I render this way. Versus, oh, I actually Googled how to do bump mapping because I saw somebody else and now my shit's way better. Like, it's just, that's really it. Once you have, that's the part I can't teach anybody. You can't teach anybody to give a shit, but excuse me. But once they do, they, um, you know, you're a good designer because you care. <laughs> I love that. I guess that's the point. 
It's a really, <laughs> really good answer there. Um, and think, talking about cannabis again, I mean, there is, it's such a new industry, a legal industry, I should say. It's not a new industry, but it's a new legal industry. Um, and there's so much still left to be formed with the industry. It's not federally, federally legal in the United States. Um, what role do you see product designers might play in shaping the future of the cannabis industry? I think it could be everything because the interesting thing about the word product design in 2023 is that it no longer means what it meant six years ago. It doesn't mean what it meant three years ago. You know, if somebody out walking out of school calling themselves a product designer could be a web three stack developer these days. And they're like, I make products and that's what the world accepts. Um, to that point, the POS terminals that the cannabis sector uses are all designed, technically speaking. The and up here in Canada, you know, we in Ontario and in British Columbia and a, a couple other provinces, the way it works is even though it's federally legal, uh, provincially either it's you know still run by the government or it's allowed to be privatized. And in those sectors where it's still run by the government, you know, there were some hiccups this year where they had to shut down orders to the entire province because their systems basically went down or got hacked or X, Y, and Z. So to the point of how do we make it, how do products help push it forward? Well, one is just make sure we don't make mistakes like that when, when making those infrastructure products. But when it comes to the visual, tangible things I hold in my hand products, they have to be things that you know, don't instantly give aversion to the masses. And, you know, like if somebody were just to walk in the next day and just like slap a sex toy on the table, everybody in the room would be like, ah! <laughs> and if somebody was to come in and walk in and like slap a bong on the table, depending on the environment, most people would still be like, ah! <laughs> you know, but I think there's something to be said about if somebody were to come in with, uh, cannabis plant that's been created in a beautiful container in a bonsai method to showcase the artistic of it and put that on the table, everybody in the room would approach it with curiosity. And so what we choose to put in the room and what rooms we choose to put them in will really help speed up people's curiosity being accepted or just slow it down. <laughs> but either way it's coming, it's just how fast we can remove the ignorance is, I suppose, the designer's responsibility. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. And it's produced by Morgan DeBon and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Sarah Ergen and Rose McLucas. Special thank you to Micah Davis and Vanessa Serrano. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Share this with somebody. Go get your money. Peace and love. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 